This podcast is brought to you by Sipla Foundation and Score Foundation. Hi, my name is George Abraham and welcome to Iway Conversations. My guest today is Hein Wagner from South Africa. He is a global adventurer, a motivational speaker, a corporate entertainer and a lover of life. Welcome Hein, good to talk to you. Thank you for the invitation George and it's uh, good to meet you again after we worked out 24 years. That is correct. 24 years ago you had come to India with the South African blind cricket team. So let's start from there. What are your memories of uh, India? Wow, you know, my my one of my biggest memories is of course the Indians passion uh for uh, uh cricket. You know, I mean, I was just so surprised that every sports shop we walked in even as the South African blind cricket team people know our bowling figures our batting they knew everything about us so we we felt like celebrities in uh, in in india it was a, it was a um, it was an absolute incredible experience and we managed to go through to the final um, playing against uh, pakistan and all of a sudden we had 5 10 15000 supporters <laughs> supporting the South african team all the locals in india so that was that was amazing what a great experience hi i was reading uh, a little bit about you and uh, there's something very interesting that i stumbled across you know we all ask the question when we are blind why was i born blind and uh, in your story i read that you found the answer to this in a couple of um, uh, as you lived and discovered life so uh, talk us through that yes george i i think like like anyone who's born blind or go blind later in life i guess your question is always uh, why you know why is it why me you know and you got lots of questions and and i guess for half my life i i was fighting that i was going to be able to see no matter what and you know i was i was fighting something that i actually couldn't change and the day that i literally accepted my blindness unconditioned was the day that so many opportunities opened up for me because i could i could use the same amount of energy that i was you know using to be upset about blindness to use it to be positive and and see the world around me experience the things around me but yes it did take a few adventures to get me to that point i and i recall one in particular was sailing from cape town to rio with another blind friend of mine and a deaf skipper crossing the atlantic ocean and i just remember being in in the middle of the atlantic 1000 600 nautical miles on the nearest piece of land when i realized i'm so small in this amazing creation that i live in and i also realized that i brought myself to this point being so far away from the nearest piece of land if i can get myself here i can get myself anywhere but the one thing that i have to do is i'm going to have to change the way that i look at this obstacle called blindness and when i did that it just opened a whole new world for me If you know of anyone with vision impairment who needs guidance on living life with blindness please share the Iway National Toll Free Helpline number 18005320469 the number is 18005320469 
and uh, one of the avenues that opened up for you seemed to be adventure. Uh, <laughs> you seem to have had a lot of adventure, whether it's on the sea or land or in the air. You know, I don't think I was a born adventurer, but I was in my in my teenage years and and living in Cape Town. You know, every sighted person kept talking about Table Mountain, this perfect picture postcard view. Right. And as a blind person, I was like, but I need to find out what this thing looks like. You know, I mean, they, they can't stop talking about it. And it looks differently, apparently, every day. Yeah. So by the age of 16, I've actually climbed that mountain six times on different angles to get a perspective. And as I said, I wasn't a born adventurer. But be- when I did this, I completely, totally, utterly fell in love with the smell of the fauna and flora, the texture of the inside of the protea flower between my fingers. And back then I said to myself, one day, you know, if I have a real job, whatever that will be, I'm going to take enough time out to go back into nature to recharge, revitalize and re-energize my soul. And I guess today my picture of Table Mountain looks a lot different to anybody else's, but I also come to learn it honestly doesn't matter. So that for me was a start into adventure. And one thing just led to another. And I, I got to sail the Cape to Rio Yacht Race, which I briefly referred to. And uh, I, I got the wonderful opportunity to play in the African blind cricket team. Uh, obviously, that took me all the way to India to the first ever uh, international uh, World Cup, which was an amazing experience. And then the adventures really started because I then got involved in, in, in doing triathlons, um, still do it today. I, I end up doing uh, also full Ironman, which is a really, really tough race. It's a real test of endurance. Um, you know, with a 3.8-kilometer swim, 180-kilometer uh, cycling on a tandem, and a 42-kilometer run uh, all in one day. But it, it, it also taught me so many things about my life. Um, it also taught me, you know, how, how not to give up. Because I guess, you know, in all of us, whether it's blindness, we all have a challenge in life, you know, or something we have to deal with, something we have to accept. And doing these adventures has certainly helped me to deal with those things, put them into perspective and, and have a great opportunity to experience the world, see the world from a different perspective. And also uh, talk to us about the APSA Cape Epic that you, uh, the mountain bike uh, adventure, which is like the Tour de France in the Southern uh, African Peninsula. Yes, uh, George, that is, I tell you, that is probably the toughest endurance race I've ever done. So, so what, it, what it actually is, it's a, it's a mountain bike race, a multi-stage mountain bike race over eight days, over 800 kilometers, over the roughest, the toughest, the most treacherous terrain, mountains in and around the Western Cape. And there's a lot of technical single track. And I phoned the organizers and I said, hey, uh, my name is Ayn. The, the, I want to speak to the MD of the race. He said, yeah, sure. And I went through, I said, yes, my name is Ayn. I'm blind. He said, okay. I said, yeah, I just want to tell you that um, I'm coming to ride the 2011 race. He said, what? I said, I'm blind. He said, I heard you. I said, listen, I'm coming to ride the race next year. He said, my friend, let me just tell you something. Sighted people arrive here. They break their arms, their elbows, their backs. It is impossible for a blind person to do this. He said to me, even, I don't think you can come and watch. I said, yeah, well, okay. And I closed <laughs> the door in my face. So he eventually, I just continued to nag him. Eventually he said, you know, you're so persistent. We'll give you an entry for free. As long as we can publish your story that you'll be the first blind man to attempt the impossible. Now, I thought it was a ridiculous headline. 
But right. I also thought that if I'm going to put my mind into this thing and we cross the finish line after eight days, it would be excellent media miles for the abilities of the blind. And that's why I signed up for the stupid headline. So for eight months, this is how we trained, you know, and we decided we're not going to do the single track. We have to, we have to complete the wheel, just carry the bike and run with the bike. And where we can ride, we'll ride it as hard as we can. So George, two weeks before the event, we got a call to say, hey, there's another blind guy from Brazil coming to ride the race. He's a Paralympian gold medalist. So right. I just phoned my tandem partner and said, look, I will not be the second blind man to finish the episode. <laughs> so we did get through the race, but it was eight hard, tough days. And um, but what an extraordinary experience! This was uh, 707 kilometers, I believe. Yeah, and it's 2,000 meters of climb per day. So they say you basically the the, the height that you climb over those uh, eight days is twice the height of Everest. So Hein, staying on cycling, I also was reading that you did a, a solo cycle trip of 39 kilometers, uh, and this was not a tandem bike. Uh, that sounds like a again. Let me use the word impossible. Uh, uh, effort. Uh, prove me wrong. <laughs> well, George, let, let, let me tell you the story how it came about. When, when I was five years old, I went, my parents sent me off to blind school about 100 kilometers from Cape Town. Now, yeah to boarding house. I couldn't believe they did that because I had so many sighted friends at home. Today, I know that was the best thing at the time because the school was really equipped for handling blind kids. Also, you know, and catering for all the inclusive needs of the blind. So my parents were right in doing it, but I couldn't believe it. So all I wanted to do was go back home and hang out with my sighted friends. But I had to stay at least for the, for the first time before I could go home for five weeks because I'll never adapt to this area, new living environment if I'm not there at least for five weeks as a five-year-old. So obviously I couldn't wait to go home. When I went home, the first thing I wanted to do was hang out with my sighted friends. And as I got out, got out the car and my parents took me back home that first weekend, I was completely, totally re rejected by this little group of sighted kids. Right. And I couldn't believe that. And, and I was like, but what are they doing? What can I do as a blind person that will that will allow them to accept me back in their group. You know, we're all the same age. The only yeah. difference is I can't see. Yeah. And I realized they're all on their bicycles. I didn't even own a bicycle. My brother owned a bicycle. Five-year-old blind kids, well, blind kids do not own bicycles unless your parents are a little bit sadistic. You're not going to own a bicycle. <laughs> but I took my brother's bike out the garage and I started pushing it up and down the driveway. And I decided I'm going to get on this bike. And three hours later, I'm still pushing this bike up and I'm realizing I'm not going to be able to do it. And as I was about to throw the stupid bicycle down, a little voice in the back of my head said, well, you take four more steps. And in those four steps, I could hear the clickety-click noise from the bicycle's gear bouncing back at me from the pavement. And I could use that and focus on it, and I could hear it. And two weeks later, I was cycling in a straight line. Three weeks later, I was challenging those sighted kids and say, hey, do you want to dice me? I'll keep my eyes closed. Now, the reason I'm telling you that part of the story is 20 years later, in that very same town... I uh, signed up for a race, a very, a very famous race in that town in Devonville, um, uh, for a 35-kilometer uh, solo ride. And the committee phoned me and said, you're blind, you want to ride solo, we can't allow this. I said, come on, you know, this is where I grew up, I know this area. And I'll put a, another friend of mine on a solo bike in front of me, five meters, I'll follow the noise on his bike. And uh, that's how we did it. We just put a little thing on the spokes at the back. And as his wheel turned, it made the clickety-click sound. And we did that 35 kilometers in a reasonable time. Uh, they did let me start before everybody else. Uh, there was about 3,000 participants. So I got to go uh, about 20 minutes before the rest. 
So by the time I got back in, there were still 2,000 people waiting to take off. Everything went well. When they announced that yeah, the blind guy's coming in and, uh, you know, give him a nice round of applause, they all started clapping and I couldn't the other bike in front of me any longer. <laughs> so we almost crashed on the finish line. But uh, luckily, we, we managed to stop in time. You know? Now, uh, you know, we all run marathons and uh, you've run many of them. And, uh, you know, running a marathon on flat ground in a city is bad enough. Now, you chose to go and run and do the marathon at Antarctica. Uh, what's the story there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it's always been a dream of mine to run a marathon on every single continent, uh, all seven, including Antarctica. Right. So I applied in 2005 and I finally got a slot eight years later because there's only 100 people that can go once a year. They do a trip for about 100 people. And you basically cross the, you go down from the most southern city in, in, in Argentina. You cross the Drake Passage, uh, Beagle Channel, Drake Passage, the, the roughest part of the ocean. We went down on an on a, on a old uh, Russian icebreaker. And um, so we made it to the, uh, to the Antarctica. We did the Antarctica Marathon. And it was, it, it was tough because it was extremely cold. Although it was summer, it was a chill factor of minus 20 degrees. <laughs> so uh, it was rather messy, no real road. And, uh, and it, was, it was extremely cold. And you, you, know, you, you, you basically uh, go on land with a boat, with a Zodiac, and then you go back to the, because you can't, there's no way to stay on the Antarctica. So we, we lived on the boat for about uh, 15 days on the trip around. But the interesting part was that the next day they were saying, we're going to sail into Paradise Bay. This was the day after the marathon. And I was like, who in their right minds called the coldest place on the planet <laughs> Paradise Bay? What a sense of humor. Indeed. But when, when we sailed in the next morning, my, my cabin mate and my guide, he was sitting at the window, looking at the window. And my question in the morning always, what does it look like outside? And he said, um, I know you're going to ask me a question, but I can't answer you today. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, I can't explain to you what it looks like because it is impossible. It's too beautiful. I said, come on, you have to be able to try at least. So he went on to say, you know, outside of the boat right now is a glacier, which is probably 2,000 feet high. And the perfect reflection of this entire ice mountain is crystal clear. The water is so clear that I can see all the colors, the perfect reflection. There are a couple of icebergs drifting past us right now where a few seals are having a good old sunbathe. And I must be honest, I felt a bit envious of the sight at this point. But what I didn't know is they, I was the only blind guy on, 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 uh, on the marathon. And they, they arranged for me that day to go kayak in amongst those icebergs so that I can get a feel for what it's about. Right. And it was so, they set me free in the Antarctica on my own on a kayak off I went. And it was, it was honestly the, 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 the thousands and thousands of tons of metric ice and snow around me. It was, it was so extraordinarily beautiful. It was the first time in my life that I could actually hear the view. And I guess that in so many ways made that adventure one of the top ones on my list because it was extraordinarily beautiful and completely untouched by the human hand. Incredible. Uh, now, moving on to another uh, amazing piece of uh, uh, achievement that you had was the land speed uh, record, the world record that you held till very recently. Uh, now, a blind guy driving a car and that too at over 300 kilometers an hour, uh, it's quite unbelievable. 
how does this happen and uh, i believe you had another madman like a, a, a called a navigator who was sitting next to you i became the i became the fastest blind man on four wheels he became the fastest backseat driver in the world <laughs> my first attempt was at the age of 35 and i first of all call, I, i did a bit of research i saw well, there was a british guy who drove 223 i thought mm, that can be beaten so i called up the ferrari maserati importers in cape town i spoke to the ceo and i said yeah i want to break the world blind land speed record Will you give me a car? Have you one that's fast enough? <laughs> He said, "Yeah, no problem." I said, "Are you sure it's for the world blind land speed record?" He said, "Of course." So when he said yes, I got such a fright that I just put the phone down. So I phoned him the next day and I said, "You said yesterday you know you're going to sponsor me a car. I guess we need to sign a contract." He said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You, I spoke to you yesterday about the world blind land speed record." He said, "Yesterday, my friend, was the first of April. I thought you were kidding." I said, no. <laughs> I'm serious. So he actually sponsored the car but it took me 6 months to get somebody to get in. So I found this guy. Right. He ran a company Speed Record SA promoting South Africa as a land speed record breaking destination. So I called him he said, "Oh, it sounds dangerous but come see me face to face." And I'm already thinking, mm, "Waste of my time, but anyway, I'll see him face to face." So we started talking we went for coffee and he said, "You know, uh, how are we going to do it?" I said, "I don't know, but you must tell me where to go." You know, and very quickly so he said okay well i've got a uh, i've got a bit of a problem mine i'm not so good with my left and my right and i'm thinking you know which part of i'm which part of i'm totally blind did you not understand but he said okay i'll stick it all on your left hand i'll stick it all on your right hand i'll see your hands on the wheel all the time i can't mess it up i'm thinking okay maybe george five minutes into the conversation of him i also realized the man has an incredible stutter so can you imagine driving at 260 kilometers an hour and he goes left somebody is going to get hurt <laughs> <laughs> that's when you worked out the system of numbers where five is the middle of the runway if he says six seven eight nine i'm going too far to the right four three two one i'm going too far to the left so basically stay on five to stay alive right so yeah we we first set the record at 269 that was broken smashed by a guy in belgium a year later at 308 we went back and reclaimed the record of 322.52 Uh, kilometers an hour and uh, i can also tell you that my navigator is now completely rid of his stutter we don't have to go back again <laughs> but as you know that yes it was broken we did it in the sl65 amg black series in 2009 but it was recently bro- broken by dan parker in a modified um, i think it was a corvette or yeah so the record stood for a while but i have reached out to a fellow south african elon musk from tesla Yeah. Um, and I actually challenged him because uh, his new roadster is going to do over 400 kilometers an hour. So I said, well, if you believe your cars are the safest there are, you should get into the passenger seat with me. So let's see if uh, Elon would be willing to uh, jump into an EV and uh, tell me where to go. To support our work with the blind and visually impaired, you can visit the donate page on our website www.scorefoundation.org. org.in please note www.scorefoundation.org.in so you started your career as a front desk uh, officer or a front desk receptionist or whatever and then yes. you climbed uh, into the went into the IT industry and so on and one fine day you decided to switch professions and move into motivational speaking why did you talk us through this journey so uh, my first job was at the bank yes as as a, as a switchboard operator answering the phone and i just it almost drove me crazy because it was 950 times a day answering the it, it was really 
but I continued to, to uh, invest time and energy into qualifying myself in IT. I was even think, fixing the bank's computers at the time, but my, my manager still thought I was too blind to work in the IT department. But one thing led to another, and then eventually I ended up working for a number of uh, IT companies. And my last job in IT was actually uh, for an international security company, uh, SSL security company, Mark Shuttleworth, a South African. Um, and I was at that stage, I was international sales manager with a huge sighted team, massive quarterly goals. Uh, so, yeah, so I did end up in, in, in working in IT. And when I achieved that, I, I felt completely empty and I couldn't understand why. I was like, well, this is my, I wanted to do this. I wanted to get the car, the home, the T-shirt, the job, the cool job and the cool, the good pay. And that, that all happened, but I felt empty and I realized that I didn't understand my purpose. And in trying to, to identify my purpose, I guess, in a way, uh, it helped me ending up in the speaking business, becoming a corporate entertainer and a motivator because it was always right in front of me. All my purpose was to help people to turn huge obstacles into major opportunities because that's exactly what I did with my blindness. Yes. And when I discovered that, it opened a whole new career for me. So at first I was speaking at schools and then uh, you know, the parents found out that there's a guy that can maybe motivate them. And that's ended up being a career for the last 16 years, being able to travel the world and have amazing experiences the world over and working with leadership teams of multinational, small, large companies. Um, and it has also been a huge personal growth exercise. And, you know, during all of this, I had to start qualifying myself during my IT career. All of a sudden, I had just managing 20, 30, 40 people. So I enrolled at the Open University of London for a management qualification, you know, to make sure that I can at least support these youngsters, you know, from an HR perspective, from a business perspective, from on a personal level, on all levels, and support the business. And yeah. that, that foundation also helped me to understand the challenges that businesses are going through today and, you know, what kind of leadership context they need, what kind of inspiration they need to inspire their staff. So that journey also took me back to India a number of years ago, um, where I had probably one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life and also a huge lesson on the outskirts of Mumbai. It's a tiny little, uh, one of the, on the cusp of one of the big slums, it's a tiny little school where there are 40 kids. These kids happen to be deaf and blind. Yes. And when I spoke at this uh, event, uh, they told me about the school. So I went to the school and I meet one of the teachers there who is also completely deaf and blind. He's been at the school for 35 years. He started as an eight-year-old deaf-blind kid, finished his schooling, went on to achieve a master's degree in education, gone back to the school. He's teaching fellow deaf-blind children. The man sits in front of an ordinary computer with a big screen in front of him for, you, for anybody that can see his benefit. Look over his shoulder whilst he's typing on a normal touch-type keyboard. I've got the Braille display under my finger so we can communicate. And, you know, my first question to him, given the opportunity to type on his keyboard, was how on earth did you achieve a master's degree in education? You're completely blind and deaf. I mean, what a world. I can't imagine my world without being, my entire experience is made up by audible cues. You know, my, my, the tapestry of the world is painted with audio. That's where it starts. Yes. And so I was just so fascinated. And he said, well, you know, we developed the tactile sign language at the school. We, uh, the kids can feel when they move their fingers, they hold my hands, they can feel what the other child is saying. It was just the most phenomenal thing. And seeing this guy, experience a guy with a master's degree in education, it just... I don't know. People ask me sometimes, would you want to be deaf or blind? I don't know. But I can tell you this. I certainly don't want to be both deaf and blind. And that taught me the biggest lesson um, 
in life. And that's, that's, that's the law of appreciation. Because if you appreciate, we should all appreciate what we've got because there are hundreds, thousands, in fact, millions of people out there that are less fortunate than we are. And the things that me and you, the things we take for granted, someone else right now is praying for. And I had to come to India for that lesson. And it was a huge lesson in humility. It's also a lesson that served me so well in my career as a speaker and absolutely everything that I do. Hein, uh, you've um, married to uh, Monica. Yeah. Tell me, how, how did you meet her and uh, what's, uh, how, did, how did things uh, evolve? Of course, of course. Uh, people always often ask me, how did we meet? I say, well, we, we met on a blind date. At least half of us were blind. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I actually met Monica in Sweden, uh, where I reside now in Sweden. I mean, eight years ago, I came to speak at a conference here. Yes. And uh, we met at the gala dinner that evening. And we, we just had a conversation and, uh, you know, we chatted and was, there was an instant connection. And a, a, two months later, she came to visit me in South Africa. And, and as they say, the rest, as they say, is history. And, uh, yeah, we got married uh, a, 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 a year after that. And, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we decided to start a family. And uh, my little girl is, uh, is now six years old. And uh, interestingly enough, her name is India. I, yeah. after, after my experiences I've had um, in your incredible country, I mean, back in when we won the World Cup of Africa, I already said uh, to myself, that if I'm going to have a daughter one day, um, I will call her India. And it took me a very long time to have children because my blindness is hereditary. And with my previous partners, it wasn't, for them, it wasn't an option to have children. But Monica said, well, you know, who's going to be a better role model for, for, for your child uh, than you? If it happens to be, but it's, no, it's not a guarantee that the, the child's going to be blind. And lo and behold, her eyes are perfectly fine. She's a very fit and healthy six-year-old and she's keep, very witty and keeping Papa very, very busy. As a blind uh, husband and father, uh, what are the challenges? Of course, you don't call challenges challenges. You call them opportunities. But what are the challenges that you found to create into opportunities as a blind father and husband? You know, it is, uh, it is, I, I was very fortunate due to the work that I do that I could actually spend. And COVID also uh, forced us all to go back home and, and, and you know, refocus and relook our situations on so many levels. But I, 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 I decided because they're only going to be small, young. So I decided to take some time out as well when she was very small to spend a lot of. So there's a very strong bond between me and her. But it's fascinating how over the last six years, you know, she started to grasp the fact that I'm blind. So initially it was, it was very little understanding. Now there's a, she doesn't understand it 100% yet, but she does she, she, a lot better. I mean, if, if we're going anywhere, she's the one who wants to guide me. She knows how to do that. And, uh, but she, it's so funny because once we said to her, you know, Papa, Papa can't see with his eyes, but he looks with his, he can see with his senses. And she yeah. heard, she heard sensors. So, so she thinks I've got very special sensors that I, <laughs> that I can do. So she often says to me, you know, Papa, now you have to turn on or turn off your sensors. You're not allowed to see this, you know, turn off your sensors. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have a very special father and daughter bond and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, besides obstacles in the house, she loves to leave the Lego on the floor. You know, our kids do, you know, and she doesn't really care that Papa can see. So I was actually rehearsing for a, for a, a corporate a virtual talk a while ago. And I was walking around the house saying, um, just during my opening line, I was born blind, but that has never stood in my way of living a full and adventurous life. And she chirped me and said, yes, Papa. Uh, sure, but you keep walking into things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely has got a sense of humor, um, uh, for sure. And um, 
you know, I, I guess as a as a as a as a dad, the, the the two things that I that I that I want to teach her is is and 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 she's 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 already getting it. She's grasping it, and it's already it's already creating success in her life. And these are two things my dad taught me: was to be kind and be generous. And if she can master those two, the world will be an oyster. Wow, that's wonderful, and uh, it's really nice, uh, Hein Wagner, that I could catch up with you after 24 years and spend this time talking to you. Uh, thank you very much for accepting this invite to be on this uh, conversation. Wish you the very best, George. Thank you, and I just want to want to use the opportunity to say a very big thank you to you for for all the work you've done um, in blind related circles. I mean, you were the pillar. Um, of putting the whole blind cricket World Cup. I know you retired from the sport in 2008, but you put the whole thing together. I'm no with a team on the ground, a local organizing committee, but you were the go-to, and and that experience has enriched not only my life, um, but so many youngsters and inspired blind youngsters around the world taking cricket to blind people, and you were instrumental in 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 uh, in making that happen so just from me from my side a big shout out for you for all the hours dedication and devotion you've put into this thank you i wish ye roshni ka karwa this podcast was brought to you by sipla foundation and score foundation ye roshni 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 ka